right, everybody. How's it going? Welcome. You are listening to Alumnus. Thank you for tuning in. It is Friday, January the 5th, 2024, first episode of 2024. And uh, excited for this one. Of course, I'm joined by CMAC founder and CEO, Chris Marshall. Hey, Ryan. And, how um, are you, sir? Yeah, good to see Happy you, my New friend. New Year to you and all our live listeners and our podcast listeners. Yeah, thank you for picking us up and making this part of your routine. Uh, we can see your comments if you're listening to us live. It'd be great if you added your comments to the LinkedIn comment stream. And we do try to uh, answer your questions during the show or during the podcast edition of the show, which you can pick up. Uh, it contains Every episode contains a 30-minute bonus segment with all of our special guests. Uh, so if you want to spend some more time with us, we would love that. Uh, follow the CMAC page here on LinkedIn. And uh, the Friday cheers section, Chris, is uh, we've added that over the last few months into the bonus section. And that's kind of at the end of the show where we each come with you know, something that's kind of on our minds right now, something maybe not advancement related, but we take a little bit of a detour the last 10 minutes of the show or what, uh, you know, somewhere around there. We've had some fun ones in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we definitely have. And I've uh, kept uh, some notes around the articles we've talked about and the books that we've referenced. So I you know, share those out from time to time on the, the LinkedIn page. But um, before we get too far ahead, I wanted to make sure we take a moment and introduce our awesome sponsor for Alumless. Alumless is sponsored by Protopia, and we as engagement pros are always trying to create more volunteer opportunities. Alumni give at three to four times the rate, uh, depending if they are volunteers. It's really important for advancement professionals, particularly those working in integrated advancement models, to be thinking about this type of uh, donor pipeline development. And at the same time, students throughout their educational journey have questions and could use the advice of alumni. So as engagement professionals, we're asked to figure out ways to make the alumni network more available from prospective student to former student and develop partnerships across the campus that will showcase in real terms how valuable the alumni network can be. So that's what Protopia solves for uh, without requiring alumni or students to sign up for another app or a platform. Protopia's AI-powered technology activates alumni and turns them into volunteers in a flash. Students and alumni seeking advice are connected while removing the administrative burden to the staff. So that's one of the things I like most about Protopia, Chris, is how easy it is to use. Uh, you know, just asking a question, a, an opportunity to respond to that question comes right to your inbox. And uh, it's never been easier to help someone five minutes, right, while you're uh, maybe doing something else or have I like a break. it because there's, there's no authentication or registration or login. <laughs> That's my favorite yeah. part about it. Yeah. So anyway, our good friends at Protopia would love it if you would check them out. And uh, of course, we would recommend it as well. So Chris, it's good to see you, sir, back in the saddle after um, taking a little bit of a break. Did you manage to uh, relax at all? What yeah. was kind of the highlight of your vacation? I, I I try to take the advice I give people, which is to take time and unplug and get off the grid. And I did that. We went out to uh, California on the West Coast with the family, the two little ones. Wife and I went out and saw, uh, we were in Monterey and we went and saw all the sites in sort of the northern half moon bay down to Carmel, Pebble Beach, and including the highlight was Monterey Aquarium. So if you're nice. a big, if you're a big um Finding Nemo or the second movie, Finding Dory, it all takes place at the Monterey Aquarium. So our kids were very excited to see the place where it was based on. Well, that is fantastic. I have to admit, I have never been to that part of the country, and it is on a very short list of places yeah, I'd love to it. travel to. That's awesome. Well, you know, we were to talk uh, about a number of topics with Scott Morey, our special guest today, He's vice president of university advancement at Carnegie Mellon. I've been looking uh, forward to this one. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have as well excited about it. I just, but to get us kind of thinking about some of the topics, uh, I wanted to actually just start at this time of year, Chris. Um, it's the start of the spring semester. You know, people are coming off of the break, coming off of some vacation. Do you recall, you know, when you were at Lehigh or Cornell, how you were thinking about this moment? Is it time for staff development? Is it time for goal setting? Is it time for 
piloting new initiatives? Like, how did you think about sort of the start of the spring semester? Yeah, the, the, um, yes, all of the above. Um, the, uh, the, the, the strongest memory I have from this time of year, in fact, it connects to our guests is where I met Scott as uh, the Pequod group, private college, university alumni directors have a winter conference each year. And it's around, you know, somewhere in early January. So the, so the start of the second half of the academic year was always marked by joining, you know, 30 Pequod colleagues where we spend time sharing best practices and telling each other about how we're doing our, our stuff. And, and you'd always come back from that conference with 27 things you wanted to do back in your program and figuring out which of the two or three you want to really take back in Cornell eyes or Lehigh eyes in my case. And that was always a challenge. And, and I got to meet Scott at his first ever Pequod conference. He started out at George Washington University and we sat next to each other and back 20 plus years ago and became good friends and have stayed ever since. So it's, it's always for me, it was, and I used it as a place to sort of take stock of our overall program, see where we were and, and add some things in that we needed. But it was always, no matter what, it was always a it was sort of the halfway point in the year to, to look at the plan, how are we doing progress to plan and, and, and take stock on where we are and, and make sure that the staff knew clearly if we were ahead behind or on pace. And, and we, that was something we did sort of, uh, almost ritualistically. Yeah. Quick shout out yeah. to the folks who joined us online. If you're on and you're listening live, please do a quick shout out. Let us know you're here from where you're from. We got Sally from Denison. Hey, Sally, Jesse, Carnegie Mellon, kiss it up to his boss. Uh, <laughs> I know you saw my, my banner up there. I did that for Scott. There's my Carnegie Mellon banner. And Robert from uh, McDaniel College. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm glad you're here. And Excited to talk with Scott. Well, well, let's let's go ahead and bring Scott out to the show. I, I mean, I would agree that this time of year is really important for kind of that assessment of what can we still get done? Uh, how do the goals we set in the summer, how are they readjusted now? And then you know, I also sometimes think that window is actually not the whole uh, till June. It's actually till April because the new budget planning time and being able to spend money in this fiscal year kind of stops in, in, early, in that part of the spring. Anyway, let's bring Scott out. We're going to talk uh, a little bit more about uh, developing the donor journey and touch points across that uh, from um, perspective of their campaign, uh, the, as well as um, how we're thinking about life beyond the campaign. But Scott Mori, thank you for joining us. It's great to see you. Good to see you guys. Guy, you got a big fan club joining us. We had a whole bunch of other people come up and say hello, <laughs> and a lot of your staff too. <laughs> it's great. Good to see some familiar names. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been looking forward to having you on the show, Scott, for a long time, and of course, you've worked with Chris and know Chris for a while now. It's nice to meet you. This is, I think, we met once at a conference uh, over the summer, I think, yeah. uh, but it was just briefly. Uh, so I've had the chance to do a little research on what you've been up to at Carnegie Mellon and. Um, understand where you are in sort of the campaign cycle. So last June, uh, Carnegie Mellon announced that the Make It Possible campaign had surpassed its goal of $2 billion, more than 18 months ahead of schedule. And I was thinking, well, that's kind of a nice place to be if you're the vice president of advancement. Uh, but I wanted to ask you there. So what has this meant for you and the advancement team there? And what are you thinking about at this moment? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's the Make Possible campaign. Not, what did I say? Not Make It Possible. Make Possible. Um, You're right. I had yeah. Make Possible written on my script, too. The only reason I say it is because when we were pitching the campaign theme around the university, there were several strict grammarians who could not get over Make Possible as the phrase. <laughs> and there was a few deans who actually wanted us to make it make it possible. And we resisted and stuck with make possible. So you gave me like a PTSD flashback there. The, it is, <laughs> um, the word it is almost in there, even as you say but that. But it's right? not. But not, yeah. Um, and Chris, I just have to say one thing about uh, our history. You know, those Pequod conferences are really just group therapy sessions. I mean, that's what I, I tell people. I said it today in a meeting earlier today. I said they were part benchmarking, but mostly therapy. Group therapy. <laughs> Um, you know, we've been very blessed uh, uh, to have made this sort of progress uh, with the campaign. Um, the reality is, is I think by and large, we developed a great plan that we stuck to and largely has played out. But we've frankly just gotten lucky on a couple things, too, um, and, you know, including some very significant gifts that were not on our horizon when the campaign started. And and frankly, um, uh two of those nine figure gifts are really what put us over the top 
so significantly earlier than we had anticipated. Um, and and although I think we you know worked hard to make the most of those two opportunities, you know there was some real just luck involved in how they came across us. And I think that's definitely one thing I've learned in uh, this career. Um, you you got to be good at what you're doing, but you also just need a little bit of luck with these things. And uh, I, I've learned never to underestimate the importance of luck. Scott, Scott what, off script here, but you can handle it off script. Um, when you get luck like that, does luck become an expectation from your leadership, from boards and presidents? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, when I think about so much of what um, my brain is focused on now is, it is a lot of expectations management internally Um, in terms of kind of what's repeatable, what's not repeatable, what's possible, what's not possible, um, what it takes to kind of make some of these gifts happen. You know, I think one of the things is Carnegie Mellon has a long history of campaigns, but, you know, frankly, we're fundraising at a level that's significantly higher than the university was doing, you know, even a decade ago. Mm. And I think that's just brought a lot more internal interest in what we do. You know, I recently presented to a group of faculty on just how advancement works. And, I, and they were just fascinated about the process we use and how we engage people and what our philosophy is and how we line prospects up with different gift opportunities. Um, I think it was a real eye opener for some of them. But, it, you know, the notion that advancement can just kind of produce uh, on on demand um, <laughs> is, is something that we work really hard to kind of make sure people understand what it really takes yeah. to fundraise at this level. It's yeah. it's not just you know you put some fundraisers out in the field and boom, two billion dollars comes back to you. Um, there there really is a lot of work involved by our president, our provost, deans. I mean this it really does take a village uh, to achieve these sorts of results. But you're totally right. The expectations management. Yeah. Um, and, and keeping the urgency up, right? Too. So it's like on the one hand, it's like a fine tune, on, right? Yeah, yeah. On the one hand, you have like high heightened expectations, and the other hand, people think we're done. So it's yeah. how, do you, how do you kind of dial both those knobs to keep people moving forward? What what, um, what led to the extension? I mean, you mentioned a couple nine figure gifts, so we're talking hundred plus million dollar gifts. Um, and we had three during the campaign. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So so what other factors? led to extending the campaign? What were the key points? Well, the reality is is that we just have some really incredible momentum going right now. And it, it sure. felt um, uh, we didn't want to squander that opportunity. And then also um, we realized that we had the 125th anniversary of Andrew Carnegie's original gift to create Carnegie Mellon, a Carnegie tech as it was back then. And so, you know, we actually started the campaign um, the year before we launched the campaign, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the merger of Carnegie and Mellon. And so there felt like there was a nice symmetry uh, to yeah, closing okay. on another anniversary. Um, and uh, we felt like that was a, a natural uh, point in CMU's chronology where we could end this campaign, thank all of our donors, and then take stock and think about what what might come next. And And tell everybody the goal was 2 billion you're ahead of pace and what's the new goal out to 2025 we did not amend the goal um when okay. we spoke when we spoke to the board about this um we just said we wanted to extend and not not change the goal we didn't really see the need to do that um because the reality is is what i didn't want to do is um pick a new goal that felt frivolous or pick a new goal that we might not hit, and then a success becomes a not a success. Yeah. So uh, when we spoke to the board about this, we were very kind of clear that we just wanted to extend the campaign timeline and not 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 worry about the goal anymore. Now it's about what do we need to achieve for the university. My last follow-up, Ryan. I'm sorry, I'm taking it off script here, but Scott, it's your show. <laughs> did, did you have? Um, Encouragement, full support. Were you bringing people along, president, boards of trustees, and other deans and leader, university leadership to get to this place, or was um, it a layup, or was it a hard, hard drive? <laughs> I, it, it really didn't. It really didn't take much effort to kind of convince people that we had more uh, fuel in the tank, and and we could keep going for 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 another another essentially year. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's one more year. It's not like we're talking about 
two, three, four more years. We're, just, we're talking about one more year. And I think for uh, we have several new deans. Like I think out of our eight deans, three or four of them have been appointed in the last two, three years during oh the gosh, pandemic. Yeah. So several deans didn't really get the full benefit of the campaign. So for several of the deans, this is also a no-brainer. Yeah. One other so quick note, we have a bunch of people who joined in on the chat. Thank you, but I want to make sure we, we call out Teresa Trombetta, your alumni leader. We'll talk about alumni engagement in a bit, but she was a previous guest on our show. Teresa, how are you? Uh, it's great to have her. I saw Teresa was joining. Well, in this question, she I've may been be following Teresa my whole CMU tenure. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is you she be interested in you your answer. She'd be interested in your answer to this next question, which is sort of you know you've you've got the campaign. It's it's, it's coming to a close. You've you've reached your goal. It's extending, but not a new goal. And you're now okay thinking about the future at the university. How are you thinking of yet? But yet you still have this the 125th uh, anniversary coming up, the celebration of the founding of the uh, school's origin institution, right? We just mentioned that. What what are you? How are you thinking about the priorities, strategic priorities for alumni engagement or engagement more broadly over this next few months? But then also you've you've got this marker down the road, uh, a year and a half from now uh, and beyond. You know, I think one of the one of the great things that we've been able to do uh, at CMU is while we've grown the fundraising function uh, to meet the campaign goal, we've similarly grown our engagement functions. Uh, and that's both our alumni relations team, our donor relations team, and our university events team. All those teams kind of work together to engage the overall community, but there's been a real a special focus on alumni. So in the last several years, we've greatly expanded our programming offerings to alumni. Um, we've frankly ex expanded our travel, uh, you know, taking the university to where our alumni are. We've uh, reinvigorated a reunion program uh, that had been dormant for a long time. And I, and I think the culture of being engaged with the university um, has manifested itself um, in attendance at events, um, and in giving, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of with the campaign, not just that we hit the goal, but, you know, we've received gifts from, you know, over 65,000 unique individuals. Uh, and that's with an alumni base of 125,000 people. Hmm. So, you know, I think we've greatly expanded the circle of people who care about the university in an active way. You know, like they don't just feel proud that they went to CMU or proud of their degree. They want to do something for CMU. I think we've really managed to kind of grow the engagement while we've grown the fundraising. They go hand and in hand. I've had a ringside seat on it. It's been fun to watch what you've done there and what Teresa's done. And you know, it's alumni relations, donor relations, and university events all under Teresa in that structure. So I think it's brilliant. Well, there are so well, many, so many complementary and overlapping exactly, skill right. sets, audiences. Uh, so the coordination of these of these efforts is, I think, really important. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Well, so your background, of course, is in the engagement side of advancement, right? Uh, you have came up kind of as an alumni leader. Chris mentioned your role at George Washington University, where it was alumni and annual giving uh, leadership role. And then you went out to the West Coast, your uh, University of Southern California, where you led the program there, including uh, responsibilities for a campaign uh and then you've been at Carnegie Mellon as the vice president. But so how does that background in alumni engagement uh, inform your thinking now? Well, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think you know, you know, when I reflect back on kind of my own path, I think actually the alumni relations role is what set me up to become the campaign director uh, at USC. And, and USC, you know, had a $6 billion campaign that they successfully concluded um, and I was there for, I was the campaign director for the first three years of that campaign. And, you know, one thing alumni relations professionals do really well is coordinate large groups of people to get kind of one thing done. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the skill set of managing volunteers, um, managing relationships really lent itself to the campaign director role because so much of it is kind of the internal coordination of who's talking to who about what, when. Um, and I think that skill set really does come through in alumni relations. And, and I think because I come up through alumni relations, that was where I started, 
you know, as the vice president for advancement at CMU, I never needed to be convinced that we needed to make collateral investments in alumni relations while we were investing in development. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I've always had a vision that the that advancement is a real thing. I, I don't I don't follow like it's development and then it's alumni relations. You know, I really believe in advancement. It it's one integrated enterprise that supports each other, benefits each other, leverages each other. Um, and you, you can only get so far with the fundraising if the engagement uh, stinks. Um, and frankly, the engagement is a business function. You're, you're doing it to achieve a result. And one of those yeah. results is fundraising. Yeah. Uh, and so I never really needed to be convinced of that. Um, I When I applied for this job and was talking about what I would do with this job, alumni relations was always a part of it. Um, through Pequot, I had some exposure to CMU. I knew uh, Teresa's um, immediate predecessors qu uh, quite well. Um, and, and had a window into kind of what could be possible at Carnegie Mellon. But I think just coming in, it, there was never a question that we were going to do it all um, and that alumni relations wasn't going to suffer or kind of be bled dry to make other things work. You know, the whole thing has to work. Yeah. And you and I have had some debates over the years about this topic. And, and when it gets to I've measuring you. I've converted you. You converted me. You have 100 yeah. percent. But when it gets to measuring alumni engagement, uh, there are places that are doing it to justify the worth of yeah. alumni engagement to prove to their VP that here's what we're doing. And you don't yeah. need that. But have, has your thinking changed at all about what we're doing on the metric side of engagement? Not not especially uh, because I fundamentally believe that if you do the engagement right. well, right. you'll see it show up in results like fundraising. If you don't believe that, there's literally no metric you could give me that would convince me otherwise. <laughs> and because I believe it, I don't need to see the metric. Right. So, you know, I, I appreciate that Teresa keeps metrics so that she can calibrate her own performance and what her expectations of the alumni relations program should be. But those metrics are not required for me to justify why we have alumni relations. It's not, And my president doesn't think that way either. So, um, you know, again, if you don't fundamentally believe that alumni relations contributes to a enhanced fundraising result, there's literally no metric you can give me that would convince me otherwise. Which is I, I why sometimes I think it's people. Yeah. I question why people put so much emphasis on it. Yep, it's, it's a great, great argument. I told Ryan as we were prepping for this that you were, you have this take on things. So Ryan, any any follow up to Scott? On well, that? I was just sort of thinking, you know, other reasons why we track and measure it are, you know, and score it right is you know empowering other audiences on campus with information, you know, and so but I'm, not I'm, to justify its existence. Right. No, no, I, I wouldn't I'm, say I'm that. Hundred percent. Yeah, you do. I, I suppose if you have a philosophical sort of belief that um, it's all kind of a joke over there on the engagement side of the house, and we're we're doing this for you know to have some events for some people that have loud you know lots of opinions and but give give money right. It you have or like to the people we want to see don't come to those events. <laughs> that's often true. Yeah, right? That's like a common trope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. And, go ahead, Chris. When when you do look at event attendance as a as a measurement, right, and you look at who is going, your track prospects are less likely to be at your alumni engagement events than. Yeah, but like for example, like when when we for example when we take our president on tour, you know, which is a substantial investment of money, his time, staff time, you know, I could look at any one of the tour stops we'll do this year. And there will be more than enough people that are there to justify yep. his time, Dean's time, Provost's time, yep. uh, based on the individual. Yep. But you know, one of the things I I really do believe is, you know, somewhere in the class of 2024, there is someone who will one day give Carnegie Mellon a hundred million dollars. I just have no idea who they are. <laughs> right, exactly. So you know, we we have to treat them all well because at some point one of them will do this and. A lot of the investments, this also requires a longitudinal view, right? Because a lot of these investments we're making now will have absolutely no bearing on the current campaign. Right. Like or your tenure or your president's tenure. Yeah, right. The benefits will not be realized during my tenure as vice president. Yep. They might not even be realized during my successor's tenure. These are kind of long-term investments that I know CMU needs decades from now. Yeah. Yeah. We should put a circle around that comment on the whiteboard because like, I feel like that's the challenge. Everyone is sort of in a different 
level of, uh, you know, sort of need to execute on fundraising due to the financial straits of the university or the timelines that are, exist for where they are in the campaign. You know, I think it's, it's definitely, you know, we have clients, I think, that we work with where it is absolutely imperative that we take the short view of engagement for success now. Yeah. And um, like they've said, well, help us. You need to help us adjust the engagement strategy for that because it's really great that you've, you know, alumni engagement has that longitudinal thing in mind. And I'm, believe me, I, I'm with it, but like we need the investments in advancement to result now in engagement that's connected to giving, right? And I need to see the results. And, and, and to be really candid, you know, this is a position that, for me personally, I've gotten more confident in as the campaign unfolded, as we started to demonstrate that the sh- that the investments we're making were having some short-term results so that we could talk about what the long-term future of the program would be. But I, I think, you know, I fully appreciate that there are institutions where the short-term is, there is some urgency. And, but to the extent that you could keep the long-term as part of the conversation, so that you don't sacrifice it. You might not be able to totally invest in it, but you don't want to sacrifice it either. Yeah. yeah. You don't want your strategy to burn bridges, right? That's right? I mean, but there are, I mean, let's let's be real. I mean, the Carnegie Mellons of the world are an elite category. There are some public institutions who are worried about keeping doors open. And enrollment is a real thing. So any right. any I mean, there's fun universities that are having that structure, that are having that struggle too. Yeah. Correct. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um well, I mean, there's all sorts of things to talk about, and we're bumping up against the the top of the hour. But um, maybe just Scott, uh, quick reflections before we take it to the podcast uh, edition. Around you mentioned the uh, some of your approaches that's made you know engagement successful during the campaign. But what are, have been some of the key narratives that um, have you've emphasized that have worked with? your audience uh, that you think have been un- underpinned a lot of the successful engagement work that you've done there? You know, I think essentially the campaign story is about the strategic priorities of the university. And so we've kept our focus on, you know, having Carnegie Mellon be at the intersection of technology and humanity, uh, having Carnegie Mellon play a critical role in shaping uh, modern culture uh, through the arts. Um, Carnegie Mellon paving the future of how science will be conducted in the future. And then also improving the CMU experience. You know, CMU historically was not a place that could ever be criticized for over-investing in campus life and uh, student uh, student support. And that's been a real priority for uh, the last uh, uh, decade or so, but particularly <clears throat> under our current president, uh, Farm Jahanian, uh, who, who's really put a key emphasis on this. And it really resonates with our students, uh, with our, excuse me, with our alumni, because uh, as we engage alumni, particularly from like the 80s, uh, late 70s, 80s, they're really proud of their CMU degree, but they didn't have a particularly great campus experience. And so updating their their narrative about what CMU is doing today, uh, I think has been really important for large segments of our our alumni base. The, uh, The opportunity to say, we realize we could have done better and here's what we're doing to do better. Yeah. Um, I think that's really resonated and it's totally consistent with what we're trying to raise money for. Love it. I've heard some schools refer like that generation refers to their experience as undergrad. They said, I got out in 1974. <laughs> I didn't yeah, graduate. I, I got out. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, I just went to my alma mater. Uh, actually, I visited the other day, but I went to the, their new wellness center right, when it had just opened up. And, you know, there was yoga going on you know, sessions like pan pipes playing like. Uh, guard indoor gardens kids these days ryan saying like it was, it, was, it was just like you know the most relaxed place you know that i've ever seen and it was brand brand new building so we we keep uh you know all vegetarian options and in the food i don't know it was interesting <laughs> but all right well let's uh chris talk about our show in two weeks and then we'll say goodbye and head to the podcast great yeah, our next guest two weeks from today live will be another rock star in the field, uh, JT Forbes. 
from Indiana University. JT has a similar uh, alumni background, is now leading the um, foundation uh, at in IU and a uh, wonderful, thoughtful guy. And it'll be a fun conversation with JT as well. Yeah. So we're going to have that conversation with JT two weeks from now on January the 19th. And if you're listening and you have not followed uh, the CMAC page on LinkedIn, please do so. Subscribe to the podcast edition so you can hear our bonus conversations with all of our special guests. All right. Well, thanks, Scott and Chris. We'll see you backstage in our other StreamYard room and uh, everybody else. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. If yeah. it's, Happy if it's New Year, fun, everybody. Thanks again, Scott. Hey, listeners. Chris and I were going to record an ad discussing all the great aspects of Protopia, of which there are many, but instead we thought it would be even better to hear from one of Protopia's current partners. Here's Sally Sistar, Executive Director of Alumni Engagement at Denison University, talking about her experience with the technology. If you like what you hear, be sure to go to protopia.co forward slash alumnus and check it out. How do you see Protopia fitting into your plans? You've mentioned a few ways that I might imagine it fitting in, but what do you think? It's a tremendous fit. Listen, I cannot tell you how excited I was when I took this job to know that they already had Protopia, right? It's a very, very smart decision. Um, because one, it just, you know, it with the AI technology enabled, like it takes us out of the equation, right? It is really, a great tool for alumni and students to ask those questions and be connected to, you know, the the top experts, right, or the top individuals to answer those questions for them. Um, what I've been really excited to hear about here at Denison is, you know, if that question goes to five alumni, well, all five of our graduates are answering. And then it gets into, you know, like, um, a train of communications between them and the individual asking the question. So it's really facilitating community for us in a way that we couldn't do that ourselves if we were at the helm of trying to you know, facilitate someone's question going to those individuals, right? It's just, it's automatic and that's the beauty of it. Um, the other thing I would say to you is that it is also, it's bringing people into um, it's engaging alumni that may not have engaged with us in any other way, right? But they really are appreciative that, you know, they get an opportunity to, to help another alumni um, member or help a student. Um, so I just, I mean, I can't say enough great things about what a difference maker that has been for us on the engagement level. Uh, thank you, podcast listeners, for being uh, with us. A bonus segment with Scott Morey and for making the podcast edition of Alumless part of your routine. Uh, maybe you're walking around your neighborhood with the dogs or working out, or maybe you're playing this podcast episode at your at your desk at work while you're doing something else. Whatever it is, thanks for doing it. Uh, we're glad that you're uh, part of the alumnus family. So that was a really good live conversation, Scott. I think you know, there was a good number of folks listening and there was lots of interesting uh, discussion points I think we could take in a number of different directions. But I, I always like to ask about the university where, where our guests work and, and Carnegie Mellon is a really interesting school that I was wondering, are there any popular misconceptions about Carnegie Mellon? You know, what what do people know about it and versus what's the real place like? You know, what's interesting is it's not so much that I think there's misconceptions about Carnegie Mellon. I think there's like a lack of awareness about Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think it's one of the yeah. kind of like best kept secrets in higher education. <laughs> um, and part of that's our own fault, frankly. But I think, you know, if you go back not not too very far, you know, maybe 25, 30 years ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. First of all, you got to remember, Carnegie Mellon is young. Like, they Carnegie and Mellon only merged in 1967. So, you know, we're talking like just a little bit more than a 50-year-old university in its current configuration. Um, and th that doesn't quite give us the history that most of our competitors have. 
Um, and, and also for a long time, I think Carnegie Mellon aspired to be one of the best regional universities in America. Uh, now it's a global university. And sure. Yeah. The aware the awareness has not caught up to where the university really is. And so a lot of the investments that we've made, whether it's in advancement or in marketing communications, have really been about kind of building reputation uh, and kind of claiming our story. But I think people are often surprised. You know, you have engineers who have no idea we have the number one school of drama. Um, and then you've got people in the arts and humanities sometimes forget we have the number one school of computer science on campus. So it's it's just this very kind of weird lack of awareness about kind of the breadth of the university and, and what it's doing, um, and, uh, and and what we're what we're what what, what we're proud of. Chris, you know, obviously you've been to Carnegie Mellon a number of times. I've, I have not, actually. I've never been to Carnegie Mellon. Need well, come, to come on down, in. Ryan. Yeah, need to come visit, Scott. That would be great. But, um, Chris, what have you noticed about Carnegie Mellon? What differentiates it? What what seem like it are its core values and, and personality traits? I mean, Scott touched on some of the things that I would point out right away, and um you know, the, the diversity of the academic program, you know, he mentioned the arts, drum one drama school, computer science, tech, technology, you know, home for many of the leading thinkers around AI right now. But there's also a business school sandwiched in between. Right? I mean, it's, it's got all the components. So that diversity of academic offerings and the quality of the programming there are amazing. Um, the team that Scott has built, uh, frankly, has been you know, some of the smartest. I, I, you know, whenever as a consultant, we bring knowledge and help people do things, but we always pick up things and take them with us. And I always learned a ton when I spend time with the Carnegie Mellon folks. And they have a great alumni board, one of my favorite alumni boards to work with. And I think it's been a, a lot of the work that Scott's done, but Teresa and her predecessors have done to get the board to a place where they are today. I see Scott, you're nodding. I think they're in a really healthy place and they're and they're adding value as a board that where a lot of schools look at their alumni board as a pain in the ass. Uh, Carnegie Mellon looks at their board as an asset. Um, I won't mention any schools who think that way, but Carnegie Mellon does not. <laughs> um, uh, and, and the other thing, programmatically speaking, some of the things that are happening in the alumni gate, even the structure that we just talked about earlier about having donor relations, alumni relations and events together. Uh, there are there are several um, things I point to other institutions to look back at Carnegie Mellon and say, there's the best practice there. See how they're doing it. Copy them. Uh, I often refer to Carnegie Mellon in that way, Scott. So kudos to you. I saw you nodding about the alumni board. Anything you want to add to that? Well, you know, it's funny. Like uh, uh, when I think back about my own tenure in alumni relations, I kind of broke down the world into two, the, the world of alumni leaders. They're, they're basically two camps. You know, there there's the barricade runners, which means their only goal is to not have a problem. That's it. <laughs> the, o- the only goal is to just not have a problem. And then there's the asset managers who realize the alumni base is an asset. And like any asset, you have to manage it and it's going to have ups, it's going to have some downs, but over time it will perform. And I consider myself an asset manager. Um, yeah, at, love at that. That's a great both, At both GW and frankly at USC, I followed barricade runners. Uh, and it, it's a really clear difference in how you approach something like an alumni board. If you're a barricade runner, the board are like the barbarians storming the gates. <laughs> and, you treat them, and you treat them that way. Yeah, and, right. And, and you and it, it you, you see it in friction. And we've worked really hard to kind of not be that way and, right. and share with the alumni board what we need them to do. And be really clear about what we need them to do this way they can decide do you want to do what we need you to do or not if you don't want to right. that's fine but this right. is what we need yep yeah the, the clarity in that is so i mean one of the quotes i picked up along the way in my journey is is that with a board you get the board you deserve and if you spend the time you just described and you get a good board functioning at a high level you yes, deserve it. you on more than one occasion yeah you, you get the board you deserve and yep. i i remember one colleague when i was at usc he was at another we used to guess be the Pac-10. He was at another Pac-10. Uh, no one knows who that is anymore anyway, so we're good. And he, <laughs> we were having a Pac-10 alumni directors meeting at USC. I was hosting it for whatever reason. And he stepped out because his board executive committee was meeting without him. And they wanted to ask him a question. And I was like, why is your board meeting without you? 
And he's like, oh, they wanted to meet about a topic and I was already committed. I was like, he, he was gone within a year of that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, I couldn't understand how you don't own it. Like you, like yeah. you have to own it. Like, Scott, if you don't mind, if, if you're okay telling the story, we can edit it out if you're not. But um, you told me a story about a similar experience you had at, at GW. GW. My, first yeah. meet, my first meeting. Tell that story if you don't mind. So, I mean, the, the, the quick backstory is I was a practicing attorney on Wall Street, and I was a member of GW's Board of Trustees as a young alumni trustee, the seat which I got to because I was a member of the overall alumni association's board. So I stepped off obviously both boards when I took the alumni job, and uh, admittedly, you know, um, uh, I was recruited for that job by the president of the university. Um, and I remember my very <laughs> say it again. Another great story, another <laughs> great story for another time. Um, and I remember my very first meeting of the alumni board. I'm talking about what I'm going to do, blah blah blah, and the president of the board says we'd like to go into executive session. So my staff all get up to leave, but I stay. And he looks at me and he says, well, would you go too? And I said, well, why? I'm a member of the board. And he said, well, we're hoping that we could have a meeting without you. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll leave. But if I leave now, I'm never coming back. And the president-elect of the alumni said, I think he should stay. <laughs> I love that. So many lessons in that story. I hope people are listening to that take stock because it was such a great example of leadership there. I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, they 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 were like the victims of a barricade runner. Right, right exactly. Right. Right. And so they they were poised to fight who had nothing to do with me. Whoever was picked, they were gonna yep. he was gonna do that too. Yeah. And luckily I had a great president elect who understood we were trying to trying to switch the narrative, yeah. um, you know, flip the script. And he, he supported us and supported me in that, frankly. That's a great story. We've talked on the show a number of times about board engagement. And I really do think it's probably the most stressful aspect of the work that we do for Only folks. Only people leadership. do it badly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, as you were describing the barbarians over the gate, you know, I feel like in my own experience was you know some of the barbarians were definitely already over the gate you know and it, like it was it, it, as you described there was a, a relationship that had been you know set out from the beginning that you know was going to be adversarial and, and it, it did i was able to you know make relationships and grow those relationships but it really did take the time of cultivating new folks and, and totally. you know yeah. turning the board over right and that took years right so I mean, right. You, have to, you have to be willing you can't expect you know loyalty and trust on day one right. the only, the only thing it. you can expect on day one is the benefit of the doubt that that's really I'm all not even, i don't think <laughs> I, i'm not even sure i got i got that yeah, i got yeah. turned down i got i asked to, i asked my first board meeting i asked for money for a program from this pot of money that the board had to approve set up by my predecessor uh I'm not, that's a different story as well, but, um, this is why, yeah. And they said, no, the board, the board voted no, (laughs) the board voted no. So, uh, it was, that's amazing. Scott or, uh, uh, Ryan, if for you, please publish this one as quick as possible. Cause I have a client who needs to hear what Scott just said by today. (laughs) (laughs) I will, I will definitely do that. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about the the campaign, what you did, what you learned about the importance of engagement. Now, I mean, I know that you already had really valued it uh, as coming into the role. And so I suppose the question uh, that I've asked here, or had you thinking about is, you know, maybe for another vice president that doesn't come into, you know, the role with the same type of engagement experience that you had or the same view of it, you know, what would your advice be for that person who is embarking, you know, sort of at the beginning days of a campaign? So this this is where, this is where Chris starts to look at me funny over, over the, over the internet. Um, You know, I think no video on the podcast, Scott, I can do whatever. I think you have to be strategic when you think about the alumni your alumni audience. I mean, so to me, there's a couple truths. So first of all, if I want to achieve an enhanced fundraising result, I need new donors. Like 
the same people who got me the last result are not going to get me double that result. So if I want to get double that result, I need to expand my base. And one of my only real places to expand my base are alumni. Uh, and so if you if you just accept that, then you need to kind of get out and figure out who you want to engage. Now, where I diverge from some of my peers, um, or when I was an alumni relations person, um, was that I don't believe in engaging every alum equally. Uh, I tend to divide the alumni into like three segments. I think roughly half could care less and never will. <laughs> and then there's like about 15%, I call them the envelope openers. They will come to anything. Whatever I throw out, they're going to lick it up. That leaves 35% in the middle. These are people who have signs of life. I focus on that group. I have colleagues who think you should treat this 50% the same way you treat this 15%. But my best investment is this 35%. So, so I and act accordingly. However you can divide your resources or your attention, your effort, should be on that because that's your best growth opportunity, whether it's fundraising, advocacy, mentoring, whatever result you need to get out of your alumni, you're not going to get it out of the 50% who could care less and never will. And I don't, and I think that holds true to every university. I mean, I came from USC, which is as cultish as it could be. <laughs> and I wager 50% of the Trojan alumni don't care and never will. <laughs> That's not exclusive to CMU. It's a universal truth. And I would I would put it. And those are the universities where the alumni are caring the most. Yes. I, I would put it against any university. You're going to have a significant portion of your alumni base that just doesn't care. And you should believe them. Scott, I, I I don't know if I've evolved or caught up to you on this, or we've always agreed and never really talked about it, but I couldn't agree more with what you just said. We have a model we put out there. I've talked to you about the A, B, C, D approach, and the D is is the is that population you talked about. I think it's bigger than 50%. At, at the average place, I think it's around 80%. <laughs> or the yeah, I, I find like half is what people are comfortable with when you you're comfortable digesting that number, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> So, so it's interesting too, then, you know, that group. So is there a role for awareness based engagement strategies? You know, when we post a video on Instagram, right, we do that with some time, energy and effort. You see the analytics behind that, but it does not track back to an individual person, right? And probably you never will, right? But you do that because, you know. I mean, I'm not saying purge the 50% from your, from your, records and pretend they never existed, okay. but don't expend extra effort on them. Right. Like, level of if it's good for the 35%, it'll be good for the 50%. But people who are thinking, how do I get someone who graduated 40 years ago, who has had no interaction with the university to now all of a sudden make us their number one priority, that cannot be the best use of your time. <laughs> it just cannot I, Scott, I use the airline metaphor and I say, if I'm United Airlines and uh, and I have Chris as a flyer and the flight gets canceled, we're going to make sure Chris gets taken care of because I fly United Airlines twice a week. Yeah. Right? The, the one the person flying it for the first time is going to get pulled off the plane and thrown in jail. Right? There is no other industry where just because you bought something once, right. we now go after you all the time for loyalty. <laughs> I mean, it's there's just a reality to it. Yeah. Yeah. So during the campaign, Scott, do you have uh, you know a, a particular initiative or partnership or, or gift that just as you reflect back upon these amazing experiences that really stands out? Uh, yeah, I mean, for whatever I mean, reason. I mean, there's a couple of them. You know, there there there's a, a an alum who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. A very a young guy, you know, in his 40s, um, who I'd gotten to know quite well and who um, uh, made a $10 million gift to name and endow the deanship for our Mellon College of Science. And I think that gift, which came fairly early in the campaign, it opened a lot of people's eyes. There was all around campus, there was like a, what? Like what, what just happened? Because prior to that, there were two named deanships 
one of which was thrown in for basically free when a college was named, and one was a million dollar gift from the early 90s. Hmm. So, and this was our Mellon College of Science. This wasn't, you know, the College of Engineering or the School of Computer Science, with all due respect to the Mellon College of Science. Um, and then that led to several other deanships being named, including university libraries, our College of Humanities, wow. um, and the Is College that the of Engineering. number 10, 10 million for a deanship? Uh, or? So we, there, um, the Mellon College and the College of Humanities were 10, engineering was 15, uh, libraries was five. Yeah. Um, but the fact that we, that gift, it shift, it, it, it said we're, ser we're serious. Yeah. Like, yeah. like we can do stuff here. Um, and then, you know, frankly, some of the, some of the nine figure gifts have just been kind of uh, staggering to kind of work on. You know, we announced the $275 million gift from the MasterCard Foundation um, to support our Africa campus, which is a very unique program, um, very mission driven for the university. But that process, which happened over the pandemic, um, was the result of almost 18 months of co-creation. Like literally every other Friday at 8 a.m., uh, we had a, a Zoom with people in Toronto, Kigali, Pittsburgh, London. The just when I reflect on how that all just happened, it wasn't so much the gift itself, but just the whole like process of of getting there with the Mastercard Foundation. Um, it, to me, it was just one of like the greatest learning experiences I've I've had yeah, uh, cool. during a, during this a, job. What an opportunity! Yeah. Um, switch back to the alumni role and. Maybe I'll ask it this way. I know on the script, I'm supposed to ask it a certain way. How do you think about the being an alumni leader has changed over the years? But if you were to be an alumni leader again, would you do things differently with what you know? You'd probably never be an alumni leader again after doing what you're doing. What? <laughs> so what? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I would do things differently from how I was doing them when I left. I mean, I, I was an alumni director for nine years, four at GW, five at USC. And even though I think like my fundamental outlook on life didn't really change, like I made a lot of mistakes. I learned a lot along the way, you yeah. know, and Same here. I, I yeah. think if I were to step back into an alumni leader role, I, I don't think I would be fundamentally different because of this vice presidency. Um, I, I may be more attuned to some of the issues the vice president was dealing sure. with. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think I would be fundamentally different. I don't, I, I, I can't think of a way I would be much different. How about give us a minute on looking ahead. What's on the horizon for the field for alumni engagement or advancement broadly? I mean, I think, yeah, I do think kind of the notion of, a, of an integrated advancement program is, is the, is we're beyond the point of return. I think on that. percent Agreed. Um, and I think alumni relations professionals who kind of, insist on being kind of separate and pure. And I think that is increasingly going to be unsustainable. Um, you know, I, I just don't see how that's ultimately sustainable down the line because the stakes are just so high now. Yeah, 100%, you know, and if right? you think about alumni relations, it, it, it is one of the most public aspects of the university so much reputational risk and reward happened yep. in the alumni office. And the notion that you could really be a part, um, you have your own constituency and you're doing, you know, I, I just think that fiction is, well, I think it's fiction. Yeah, um, I, agree. I, I agree. I think that outlook is not sustainable. It's, we, we deal with clients who are going through that process, you know, real time, large public flagship universities who are going through that, that change. Yeah. And the digestion of that reality to some, usually the old stick in the mud board member doesn't want to change anything from what it was like when they were in school back in the 1970s or before. Yes. And, yes. and those are hard. Those are real tough evolutionary changes, but I think necessary. I think it's, I, I agree with you. It's and by the way, that doesn't mean you can't have all the things about your alumni program that you love, sure. but you have to understand that you're, you're, we're all here to serve an institution whether you're a staff member, a faculty member, a volunteer, we're all here to serve an institution, not ourselves. Yeah. And, and I think having those conversations, it doesn't mean we have to give up the things we love. It just means we have to understand who we're working for and why we're here. Yep. Yeah, you're, you're still giving out therapy in the Pequod way. I want to have many people listen to this podcast to hear this last part just alone, because I think it's <laughs> dead on. Yeah. 
Well, in the interest of time, I want to uh, head over to our final segment and our Friday cheers discussion where we, we try Scott at the end of every show to just talk about other things in our lives we're interested in. It, it may could be about advancement. It doesn't have to be. It often is about higher ed, but um, what's, what's something that's got you thinking or what resource have you found that's been helping you out? Oh, see, when you posed this question to me prior to this, I, I kind of went lowbrow in my, uh, low I have a lowbrow too, Scott. So don't worry about well, it. Because you know, works. like these, these jobs are really intense. And, you know, when you're sitting in the alumni relations world or the advancement world, you're, you're, you're just getting bombarded externally, internally. I mean, it's like there's nowhere to go. Um, and so um, I always try to find like good pieces of candy. And I have to admit, um, I have been obsessed with all things related to the Alex Murdoch case in South Carolina. Um, for those of you who are not following it, this is one of the craziest stories yeah. of greed, depravity, and the evil. attorney, right? The attorney, South and Carolina. For whatever, right? yeah. for whatever reason, this case has just thick. I've gotten fixated on it. I, <laughs> there, there is not a podcast I won't listen to, a YouTube video I won't watch, because to me, like there's so many lessons about power and human nature, and kind of good and evil for whatever reason i have just fixated on this story and it's one of the things that i take a break from my advancement world uh to enjoy one uh, other I, one I, that you take a break crime from. i listen to as well go ahead true crime, right one yeah. of one of your other breaks and your passions is one i share is your broadway uh, uh yeah I just uh i spent my winter break in manhattan i saw uh I had no plans for winter break. So I was like, let's just, I'm just gonna go to New York for a couple nights. Give us your top show. What was your most recent top show you've seen? So I saw out of the three shows I saw last week, um, there were two that I really just loved. Uh, one was a play called Appropriate with Sarah Paulson, which I guess is about a dysfunctional Southern family tearing itself apart <laughs> um, after the patriarch dies. Uh, and then I saw Pearly Victorious uh, with Carnegie Mellon alum, Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, it was a, it's a revival of a play written uh, by Ossie Davis in the civil rights era. And he just gives an incredible uh, performance. Um, so th those two plays were just outstanding. Yeah. Cool. So I'll, Ryan, I know you usually hand it to me here, so I'm going to go with my Friday cheers yeah. and it's Broadway, uh, big fans here in this house. So I follow Scott on Facebook and I always get jealous of his Broadway hops, but we go in quite a bit. Colleen and I have seen close to 50 shows together and, uh, most recent favorites, one you can't see anymore. It's done, but Goodnight Oscar, Scott. Did you get a chance mm. to see that? I did not. Unbelievable. We, we saw the last performance of it. Merrily We Roll Along, Daniel Radcliffe, Jonathan Groff was yeah. fantastic. Uh, and we're going next week to go see How to Dance in Ohio, which I've is heard a, that's incredible. a show about written by a neurodivergent person, performed by neurodivergent actors, yeah. uh, about a neurodivergent person. And, yeah. and our this is highly resonant with our house because our kids are in that ballpark in that category. And we're going to get to experience that with them together next Saturday. So we're really excited about that. I love watching you hang all your posters. Yeah. They're all over our, our main yeah. hallway. You're right. <laughs> awesome. That was a good one. Uh, mine's uh, about our line of work. Obviously, Chris, we, we do work with other organizations that are not in higher ed, although we do mostly in higher ed. Yep. I follow, I subscribe to, you know, alumni. So, you know, whenever that's used in an article, I get a recap, right? So I'm constantly looking at mentions of the word alumni. And it's always interesting to see where it pops up. And I noticed that the embassy, uh, U.S. embassy in Italy is currently uh, producing an alumni engagement program for former like participants in other government-funded projects to apply for a grant and to use the money uh, across uh, several different areas of, you know, sort of in that that world, including um, transatlantic security, economic prosperity, democracy, and values. So, like getting alumni of these of these programs to submit for this grant, and um, based on using it for, you know, in these in these particular ways, and it's just a friendly reminder that the alumni. Yeah. Ness uh, is a sticky thing, and it's it's not just about the schools we attended. It's about the organizations that we participate, places we've worked, right? So, um, yeah, more lots to talk yeah, about. You and I went lowbrow 
Ryan went highbrow. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking with the lowbrow. <laughs> you got you guys did did great. I was definitely thinking about um, you know, an app. I'll, I'll share an app or something next week, you know. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but you know, the, the non-alum the non-higher ed alum we, we work with the uh US Olympians and Paralympians as in a great example. My, 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 my old law firm has an alumni group. I believe um, it. Yeah, yeah. There's a group of all the people that clerked for the federal judge I clerked for. So, you know, it's uh yeah, Girl Scouts have an active alumni program. Boy Listen, Scouts do. I mean, it's very interesting. Humans yep. are social. They like to be part of groups. Yep. All right. Well, we'll let you go, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Chris, good to see us. Yeah, again. Scott, thank you so much. Great episode. Really Thanks, appreciate guys. it. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy you too. See you. See ya.